You are on Max's Island, a podcast by Meet Max Power. On Max's Island podcast, you'll hear the lived experiences of people who choose to live life a little differently. It might be a story of when they took time out and dared to do something crazy. Perhaps they made a decision to leave it all behind and follow their dreams. Or maybe they just stopped listening to what other people thought and did what was right for them. This experience becomes a story that is part of them and one that you need to hear. So, now that you're on Max's Island, listen to the wisdom in these stories and you too will be inspired to do what you have always wanted to do. Tony here, and after a short Chrissy break, we're back and preparing a new season of Max's Island podcast. Max's Island has been a fantastic creative project, and in today's episode, to launch the new season, we'll go back and hear highlights from each of the first five episodes. It's a great way to start the year with a timely reminder of the interesting stories we all have within our lives. So enjoy reminiscing with me, and you can look forward to many new stories coming your way in 2020. Episode number one started with Gareth Durrant. Gareth is well-travelled and a highly educated social impact influencer who studied for his degree in business administration for five years in Taiwan and in an environment where he learnt totally in Mandarin. What always comes to mind when when people ask me about, uh, you know, your greatest achievement or something, you know, that people might not know about you, I, I kind of go straight to my time in Taiwan. So I, I grew up in Perth. Um, after high school, I went to Taiwan on exchange and it was just meant to be a gap year. So one year staying with a homestay, learning Chinese, going to a Taiwanese high school, that kind of stuff. After that year, I kind of got a little bit hooked and uh, ended up getting a scholarship to study in Beijing. So I added another year to that. And I was studying for a year at Beijing Normal University. And by that time, I kind of spent close to two years speaking and living in Chinese, in the Chinese-speaking world. And it didn't make any sense to come back to Australia to either do an Asian studies degree or, you know, continue my Chinese. So I just thought I would take a leap and I would apply as just a international student at the local university in Taipei. So the the logic, although it was flawed, um, was that instead of coming back to Australia and, you know, learning Chinese or continuing Chinese, I would simply learn other things uh, in Chinese uh, at uh, a school in Taipei. So I signed up for 
a BA, so business administration, but um, all my classes were uh, in Mandarin. I was lucky enough to also get a scholarship for that. So the Taiwanese government are very generous to kind of uh, motivate people to come and learn Chinese, but also do undergraduate and masters and PhDs in Taiwan. What I didn't really realize is that two years of language study does not equip you to study at university level. I don't think you know my 18 years of English equipped me to study at <laughs> a university level in Australia either. So it was a real hard slog, and it was a four-year degree, and it took me five years. I failed a lot. First year was particularly brutal, but essentially, yeah, my 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 go-to is always this this time when I without really thinking it through and without kind of considering the fact that, you know, I was 20 or 18 or something and, you know, didn't really have any support networks and was not, you know, ethnically Chinese and did not have an extensive background, was about to embark on an undergraduate there kind of uh, on my own and, you know, thought about quitting a lot. But eventually, you know, got a, a diploma and I have a, quite a number of stories of all, all my failures in that space. But ultimately, it was a triumph in the sense that I, 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 I stuck it out and probably was one of the very few Australian, you knows that have um, studied and graduated from, from that university in, in Chinese. Was there a pivotal moment when you thought, oh, actually, I'm going to get there now? Every semester was a roller coaster. Yeah. So I would start every semester with a lot of... Yeah, just a lot of enthusiasm, and then it would slowly chip away as mid midterm and um, and and finals uh, approached. There's a couple of things like milestones that really got me. One was um, I started to take classes in the gender studies department that were electives, and suddenly I realised that often the barrier wasn't necessarily my ability to speak Chinese or write Chinese. Because, you know, obviously it's quite an intense process and I spent a lot of time preparing in the library and whatnot. It was actually the kind of um, educational culture. So in the gender studies department, you could write an essay. I could think about it. I could think about how I wanted to express myself and I got decent marks in there. In the business department, if I couldn't balance the accounting sheet I got zero right like it was just a really different way of doing things and similarly um, the biggest obstacle was calculus it was a required course as part of the business department and I failed it five years in a row so I took it every year and that was when you you know you would show your working and even if you showed your working but made a small mistake the entire thing would be a zero like there's no part marks in Taiwan so when I started to excel in other areas in terms of like history humanities and other things in the gender studies departments I realized it wasn't just you know my inability to be perfect in Chinese it was really hard for me to retrain myself in a more um, you know kind of traditional education model last year summer school so this is after failing essentially five times in a row and then having to stay on for the summer school bit of calculus I finished the exam and walked out with like an inkling that I probably nailed it this time but wasn't you know willing to um, you know jump for joy just yet and at the end of that what they do um, is just print out your name, student number, and your score on an A3 size paper, and let's put it on the in the hallway, and then you all rush up because everyone texts each other that the scores are out. 
and so I went up there and checked my name against my student number and checked my score and it was 61 or something like that it was like 62 just barely making because 60 is a pass mark that's the other thing 50 is not a pass 60 is a pass and then I was really happy but then all that anxiety kind of sunk in and I walked away going like what if I didn't pair it up correctly like what if I looked at someone else's score (laughs) to number and so I actually ended up walking off campus finding the first news agency buying the biggest ruler I could find walking back to the hallway and actually like you know like a plumber making sure that I got the exact that one up (laughs) and when I when I when I finally you know did that I was like yes all right now I think I I can actually um uh, finish this off but yeah it was a very long slog and there were a lot of moments like that where I didn't think I would uh yeah, pass or, or, or make it. In episode number two, we met Claire Sara. Claire introduces us to the world of flow and how our knowledge of human behaviour is being challenged by new research and ideas. She is at the forefront of this field with her doctorate and is also working with some of the world's leaders in this area. At the beginning of this year, in February, I jumped on a plane to America for the first time. I've done a lot of travel over the years, in particular Asia and Europe, but I'd actually never been to America. And I was heading over there for a very specific reason, and that was to do some training with the world's leaders in flow science research. They're known as the Flow Genome Project. And... Although I had been completing my doctorate and, and going deep into to the research of flow psychology and flow neuroscience, this particular organisation had also been training with and doing online training with them and they launched and announced a coaching certification. And I just knew for some reason that I needed to be there with the other first people in the world to be trained in this particular way. I needed to be there and to experience it and I just had a gut feeling that it was going to add the final piece that I needed to um, my thinking for my doctorate and also I think just the final piece of training I needed personally to really bring this uh, work to life. So I headed over, it was a five day live immersion. And this was the first time it had ever been held? Yes, it was their very first cohort of people that they've taken through and trained in this way so there was about 50 people from all around the world from all around the world there was about five other Australians which I didn't know previously but I'm now very close to and we've just done a workshop in Melbourne with yes yep so the way it operated is we were all sort of the, the training was in Santa Cruz in a really beautiful health retreat called 1440 stunning stunning grounds in the Redwood Redwood Forest and we were all lumped in there together not really anyone knowing anyone um, for five days straight and basically asked to get to know each other very well through a number of different ways and we've come out the other end we then so that was five days and then we trained together for six months um, online so checking in once a week with each other on zoom for about an hour and a half and also completing a number of sort of online missions um, that required a lot of personal sort of looking deep into our own selves and then sharing what we found with each other so at the end of six months you can imagine we're all very close and connected and and I now now have some amazing lifelong friends so that sounds very West Coast American, mm-hmm. and it's 
probably for a lot of Australians a non-traditional learning environment. Yeah. What did you find that that brought to the process being a little bit um, less traditional? It was less traditional on so many different levels. So obviously it not being within an academic structure so that while they partner with a lot of universities they're an independent organisation that is highly experiential action learning so that's what I was looking for. I had, you know, had my head in textbooks for the last few years and whilst that's important and had got me so far, this was actually sort of living and breathing what I had been studying so deeply. It was also non-traditional in the sense that they're very much about choosing the left-hand path when it comes to looking at how we think as humans and how we make decisions and what, what information we pay attention to and their whole thing is around really this, this idea of self-authoring. So rather than going along with what we've been told forever and conforming to what is expected of us or even just believing what, what we're told or what we hear in the news, really the, the first part of this training was really un, unpacking and unstitching all of that socialised thinking and putting together mindsets that were way more open to considering a different way of doing things and that was confronting in ways because it meant you know really looking at ideas or opinions I'd had about the world that I'd been taught probably through the eyes of my my parents and and realizing actually that that's not the only truth and that there's other ways to think about things and that as adults and growing adults we are allowed to continue to form different and new opinions around things and actually apply different mental models to to make our decisions. So although this was about flow and flow states and accessing flow states, first and foremost, it was around how to think differently. Episode number three had Aidan Date light up the podcast with his unique style of engagement. Aidan has been part of the Social Impact Network in Perth for some time, and he even spent nearly two years in Tanzania to teach people about starting a social enterprise. But now, he runs an improv group in Perth. Let's find out how this happened. I was thinking that, for me, an active choice is often when I cease to choose and allow my life to choose for me. That sounds very esoteric, but it's not as such. So... I'm thinking in particular of uh, I took over this improv company, Only the Human, a little bit over a year ago, and it wasn't something I wanted to do. It wasn't something I imagined myself doing. And a lot of things seem to be pointing towards saying, like, this is what you've got to be doing right now. This is your place in Perth in the world at this moment. But isn't that your, one of your hobbies? Well, that's exactly it. I'd thought of it as like a hobby. Like improv's fun and games. Like I can make my forearm into a dildo. I can put a pink thing over my head and mime a clitoris on stage. But I'd just come back from Africa, you know. It's like, it's like let's solve poverty, you know. Uh, let's start a social enterprise in another country. So to go from that, those very high ideals about what I could do with my time... Uh, down to this kind of running this make-believe company that was just hemorrhaging money. Uh, it wasn't something I pictured myself doing. 
Wow, That's, that is really interesting. So what, what, led, what led you to land into the situation where you took it over? So I, my general attitude towards work for the last five or six years has been don't get entangled, practice detachment, be a good Buddhist, don't get involved, no feelings, blah, blah. So I kind of entered into the company like very tentatively, dipping my toe in the water, just coaching one night a week and not going to many events. But uh, there had been uh, some issues raised with the past leadership and being the new guy on the block, or at least relatively new because I've been living abroad for the last 18 months, uh, a lot of the complaints seemed to come to me. So I found myself spending a lot of time sitting down, talking with people, hearing out their concerns. The company was losing a lot of people as a result. It was losing a lot of its best talent. Um, I had spoken to people that had moved country because of issues with the company, kind of becoming alienated from their community. So it was a problem and I felt like I was the person in a position to solve it. Uh, so I ended up taking over as director after it a couple of months of fighting with myself about it. Tracy Wilson featured in episode number four. Tracy was our first guest on Max's Island who actually has a house on an island. She is a restless soul who does not take authority too well, uses a glass of wine from neighbours to feel at home on her island, and is fulfilling her dream of being a fiction writer. Enjoy your visit to another island. Well, I did literally buy a house on an island. <laughs> How appropriate is that? <laughs> <laughs> and I have learnt that maybe you don't put a gypsy on an island. Ah. How big's the island? Uh, it's not big. And, um, yeah, so I got a house on an island to write books and just ended up getting a bit stir-crazy and um, it ended up with kayaking around the island many times and just meeting random islanders and drinking all their wine supplies and not a lot of writing, really. So before we get onto the writing, what's it like on the island, on your island? On my island? Um, it's, it's a different time zone and when you cross this little expanse of water, you do feel totally cut off and people just do things very casually and, and there's no time schedules and, and it is a different experience. It's yeah, I like it. it. Wouldn't be everyone's cup of tea. And were you accepted quickly on the no, island? Not at all. I I don't think you do get accepted. I think it attracts people that just don't want to be around other people. Um, so I have um, just invaded people's space and drunk their wine supply, really. Um, <laughs> and so your property down there, your house, mm. how luxurious is it or how natural is it? Uh, it's natural. There's no luxury in it. Um, it's just a little cabin. It's three bed. It's a little cabin and it's very modest and it's amongst an acre of bush and then is across the road from the river. And it's just, yeah very um, life stripped down, which is what I felt I needed to, to write. So I'm always interested in how places feel. Mm. So I'm assuming it's quiet. Yes. So 
how does it feel and, and does that quietness create a particular feeling? Um, it's eerie, actually. Uh, I've just had a friend come back who dropped off the keys last night and she said that the quiet was unsettling for her. Mm -hmm. And in fact, at night she'd have really bad dreams because I think we, um, we have so much white noise around us that we don't have these pure deep dreams always when we're you know, in a busy society. It is a bit spooky and if you are an unsettled soul, if you had something on your mind, I think you wouldn't have a big escape from that, I think. I think that it could be a bit much for some people. Yeah, so that's probably why you said it attracts a certain type mm. of person that perhaps can mm. enjoy that that time, that, that silence yeah. That, yeah. and what that brings. I think you'd need to be at a certain place in your life for that to be healthy. So that ah. gets us to the point, that certain place in your life. You do have a a little hidden goal about mm. around writing yep. and you did mention it earlier that's one of the reasons you bought the house is yep. to have it as an escape I this did. quiet escape where you can write how has that played out for you uh i think it's really interesting because sometimes what we want and what we get are two different things and my nana used to say god laughs when we make plans um, so yeah, the plan was that was my writer's heart. I've had these books swirling in my head forever and that, you know, that I'll get there and I'll write my stories and, um, you know, the, the stresses of the world and all the problems that prevent me from writing will go because I'm on an island. And, but I got there to discover that I am my biggest challenge. I am my biggest distraction. So I just took the distraction with me to the island. And what do you mean by that? Well, I think we make all the excuses in the world for why we can't live the dream. And it's often because we're so afraid of failing in that dream. Mm. And we think, well, if I, it would come true, I'd be able to do it under certain circumstances. Da, da, da. And then you get the unusual circumstances. Not everyone can buy a house on an island to write books. So I'm very privileged. But no matter what the privilege, at the end of the day, it doesn't take away from the hard graph that you've just got to sit down and, and get shit done sometimes. And it doesn't take an island or whatever. It just takes the absolute fearless motivation to give it a go. But I took the fear with me. So it doesn't matter where I go, I've got to actually internally work on myself to write those books. And that's what the island has taught me. And in episode number five, Beck Bowman grounded us all. Beck is a well-known presenter on RTRFM. She can regularly be heard on Friday mornings on Artbeat and also at other times presenting the hip-hop show All City. She lives in her suburb of choice and she's doing everything she can to make it the best community for all who live there and for those who visit. I guess where that became bigger... Yeah then you know brunch and cocktails and coffee is when I um and started getting to a point where it was not time for me to buy a house because you know there is no time frame like let's just you know <laughs> um not subscribe to that but I was in a position where I could buy a house I'd saved up enough money that run this is through you know since being 14 saving money from every pay and I'd saved up a significant amount of money I could buy a house and I 
realized that if I was going to do that, then I had to think very carefully about where and what I was going to to buy, because. So what time frame are we talking here? How many years ago? This was about. This is two thousand eleven. So, so if not that long ago. Yeah, if you're in WA, <laughs> it was kind of peak. Peak time. Peak peak boomy time. Uh, so you know, I had these opportunities to buy houses that I could have afforded and like I could have I could have afforded them I could have brought in an inner city suburb but if I had done that then every single cent that I earned for the rest of my life (laughs) would have gone to this 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 house and I had banks you know just the classics classic stories of banks kind of like trying to push more money on you and saying, you know, you like you can actually you can borrow up to this much amount and and kind of having to um, stop that heady heady feeling and think about what it is that you really want and what I wanted was somewhere that I could call home, somewhere that I could create community and. Somewhere that I could leave for periods of time to travel without it compromising the the payments, obviously, <laughs> uh, and compromising kind of my financial future. So I ended up buying a house in a very undesirable suburb in Perth. So is that near where you grew up? It is near where I grew up. Okay. Yeah. So it's about 10 minutes away from where I grew up. I wasn't that worried about it because I'd always lived in pretty dodgy areas. <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, now I live in a house that I get to live in alone. It's a three by one. It's an older house. And even though... And, I, and I'm now kind of like, what's, what year is it? 2019. I'm now eight, eight years down the road. I'm in a position where my where I'll have it paid off by the time I'm 40. So, you know, within that 10-year 10 10 year frame. And that has been a really kind of defining thing for me. So, you know, I'm not... Like, obviously, like, there's some humble bragging there. But <laughs> but uh, quite genuinely, that, that decision to buy this property, to pay it off within this time frame has really kind of defined and allowed for the decisions that I have made regarding where I spend my time and what other things I do with my life. Thanks for listening this week to this blast from the past. Stay tuned in 2020 for heaps of new journeys to Max's Island.
how it had turned out this way. He told me his plan, a short-term escape, five weeks on the Bibbulmun track. Go it alone, no one to blame if he finished or fell by the way. sense was engaged, his mind was as clear as the sky, completely alone, no emails or phone and nothing. 